0: Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on FEPS-Europe.eu.
1: Hello, this is FEPS Talks, the podcast series of uh, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. My name is Laszlo Andor, I'm the Secretary General of FEPS, and I have uh, recorded uh, quite a number of uh, podcasts already in the last uh, three years. And maybe our listeners would agree that more than two thirds of our guests have been either members of the European Parliament or university professors. And today we have a special situation, because my guest is a member of the European Parliament and a university professor at the same time, René Ripassi. Welcome to the FEPS Talks, I'm really happy to see you here. Thank you very much for the invitation. René, we welcomed you uh, last year as um, a member of the European Parliament, And at the same time, I think we can tell um, our listeners that we knew each other for about 10 years because you were working um, as a legal expert on um, very important reforms of the Economic and Monetary Union, specifically on unemployment insurance or reinsurance. Uh, Maybe we come back to this specific question at the end of the conversation, but I would like to start with something else. Because you were a new MEP when uh, something happened which was, I would say, unexpected to all of us. And I'm sure it was uh, unexpected to you um, as a member of the European Parliament, the so-called Qatar Gate. This kind of scandal can happen. And unfortunately, this scandal actually hits uh, the family of the socialists and democrats this is definitely a blow to us. And first of all, I would like to hear from you how you saw this shock, this, and I could say, drama. Um, what were your thoughts at the start and what is your assessment of the situation now?
0: Yeah, this was definitely a shock. I mean, the news came as breaking news on a Friday. I recall. And at first it was about our uh, former MEP Panzeri from, from Italy. And then quite soon, and there were the revelations on Eva Kaili and, and others. And the very fact that there was a blunt corruption and indeed this very bluntness of what we know from the press that cash was found in the house, in bags. I mean, this, this reminds me of a very bad 1950s mafia kind of movie. Nowadays, I would say this kind of stuff is going to happen with blockchain or uh, cryptocurrencies. This was still done in this, this, let's call it old-fashioned manner. But the very fact that, uh, let's say, aside of this rather uh, weird kind of situation, the very fact that you were surrounded by uh, former colleagues whose political conviction is so low that they were able to sell them for the highest bidder, that is still a shock and it is still in the bones. And um, you also have to see in the European Parliament, we do very important work for the citizens. But it is so that the authority of a parliament with citizens is not because it's somewhere in the treaties or in constitution, but it derives from the very fact that citizens consider us relevant. And here, national parliamentarians always have an advantage. It's three to zero in advance uh, in terms of trust that citizens have that they act in their interest. For the European Parliament, it was uh, 13-0 against us when we started our work. So it was a hard work over decades to convince citizens of our necessity and why it's good that we are doing. And I think we reached that point that citizens started trusting us and seeing that it's relevant what we do and that we it's important what we do. And this work of decades was destroyed by some in one second. And that is what annoys me deeply, and mm. many, many of my colleagues in the S and group as well.
1: Uh you are using it- very, very strong um, expressions. Um, you are the lawyer. The presumption of innocence is not something you would prefer to consider and wait until we see everything or, or it's, it's better to clarify um, your position immediately.
0: Well, let me put it like this. The presumption of innocence is indeed the term of criminal law. But uh, in the European Parliament, we are not a criminal court. We are a political institution. So we have to decide on the basis of political considerations. And the facts to the extent that they are known, they were sufficient to prompt us to react. And the way of how we reacted, I think it was was good, also taking into consideration what presumption of innocence ultimately means. Because what we actually did is we were excluding those members from their membership in the S&D group, or better said, we were suspending it. So if at the very end it turns out that these were uh, wrong allegations and that uh, the facts show that there was a different truth, then we made also clear they are welcome to return. But the gravity of the facts that became public was so much that we could say as political institution, we have to draw consequences and be very
1: clear and strict and quick in how we act. Mm. We have also witnessed um, a lot of actions on behalf of the group, but also the European Parliament um, as a whole. And when I see the European Parliament, its leadership collectively uh, acting um It basically suggests that what we are facing is not simply so-called bad apples, certain individuals, unfortunately, randomly, you know, uh, taking the wrong judgment and and doing something which is absolutely wrong, but some kind of structural issue, which calls for a structural solution. Um Where would you locate this, uh, you know, lump of problems between having a structural problem on the one side or some bad apples? randomly popping up on the other side?
0: I personally say it's both. (laughs) And that's a little bit uh, the problem of the current discussion since it uh, is at times we have a discussion that, that goes around it's the one or the other, but it's actually both. So, let me clear from the outset. If you have a personality uh, whose belief in her or, ho- or his own convictions is so low that, they, that their convictions can be for sale, then they are prone to corruption and accept money irrespective of how strict the rules or everything else is. It's basically like a murderer who commits murder, although there might be a death penalty on murder. So those rotten apples, those shady characters, they simply exist and they will always exist. It's It's unfortunately a part of human nature. So what matters is then that the system in which shady characters might be active is designed in such a way that it becomes inattractive for shady characters to enter it, or the incentive structure is built in such a way that their behavior cannot lead to corruption cases. What do I mean by this? I mean that there are three steps that we have to look at when analyze the system. The first is the part How do we select the people that are entering the European Parliament? This is very much related to national electoral law and very much to the national... Um, selection procedures. What, if I may use this image, what vampires dislike the most is the light. So the best way to fight shady characters is to have transparent procedures. So the more transparent and the more open a procedure is for becoming a candidate with a prospect of success for the European elections, mm-hmm. the less shady characters will go for it. The second element of this is competition. The more there is competition, shady characters are afraid to lose against strong politicians that are entering this competition. And in both fields, the elections for the European Parliament and our selection procedures, there is a potential for changing them and making them stronger. Mm -hmm. So we have to analyze what is actually happening in our national parties in the selection procedures. The second element is the incentive structure in the Parliament. Uh, In the European Parliament, we have a situation that not only amongst MEPs, but also amongst people working for the Parliament, very much is built on loyalty and patronage. Mm-hmm. In German, we say the fish thinks from the head, which I think is a saying that even works in English. And here you just have to look how the Secretary General of the European Parliament got selected. Irrespective of maybe his quality, ultimately, in the end, he was not qualified for it. And there were rules. And we were quite tough on Martin Zellmayer when we eliminated him as Secretary General of the European Commission. But for mm-hmm. the Secretary of the European Parliament, all rules were bended. Hmm. Um, And we created two new directorates so that other parties would support this nomination. And they were then directors on the basis of their party affiliation nominated. And that shows that everything is built on patronage and loyalty. And that is precisely a system in which shady characters can flourish. Because if then we have people in the system that think they owe their position due to personal relationships, of course, they feel a, a certain incentive to work on a personal level, then uh, in the loyalty to the institution. The third pillar of it is public attention. Mm-hmm. Let me make this image. In Berlin, we have 50 journalists on one member of parliament. In Brussels, we have 50 German members of parliament on one German journalist. And that makes it that we have too little public control, public attention for what is happening. And then once again, vampires dislike the light, but they can act in a lot of shady areas because there's too little light that is put on European politics. And that creates a mix within which shady characters can flourish. And therefore we do have those rotten apples that are coming. If it is good that now we were actually able to identify them and to get rid of them ultimately. So it shows the system is working to some extent, but it nevertheless does not relieve us from changing the system at all those three elements.
1: Mm -hmm. I think it's quite clear that uh, the selection procedures, selection principles is one key area where more attention and perhaps some reform is needed. I saw that the discussion actually went to another direction in the European Parliament, which is the role and the influence of NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and you also participated in this discussion. Can you please sum up uh, your position and what is at stake, what is at risk? when the discussion goes towards NGOs?
0: Uh, Rightly. We had this debate in the the plenary session of February, if I recall it correctly, where the um, EPP tried to make the entire scandal an NGO issue. Of course, if you look at the facts, there were NGOs involved. But the very point is there are gaps in our transparency rules. There are gaps in the way of how we deal with lobbyists. And if we have tougher rules on NGOs, fine. If they also apply to any other lobbyist that is running around. Since it was completely wrong what the EPP was alleging, that there was no transparency on the financing of NGOs at all, once you are in the transparency register, they are quite heavy and tough transparency requirements also on your funding. And if you look at the funding rules of the European Union, they also have clear rules on how funding is to be used. It doesn't take away that there might be a need to change the rule here or there. But what has happened here was to put the spotlight on NGOs and to avoid any kind of light on other organized lobbyists. And the very fact that in Qatargate, we had third country representatives that were the problems. It has nothing to do with NGOs, and they uh, were also not covered by the transparency register. So therefore, the whole debate became one that everything was to be pinned on on NGOs, and that brings it into a very wrong direction. It is what aboutism? So we discuss about something else than what is mm-hmm. actually necessary in order to avoid future corruption scandals.
1: I see the point. So there is a high risk of I think what the English call gaslighting, right? Yeah. That you you create an appearance about something which might be bogus and yeah. uh, and not necessarily to a proper solution. I can assume that this whole issue has been um, also a kind of distraction and and consumes a lot of energy, while you would prefer to spend your time on the issues which um, you prepared for when um, you joined the the parliament. You're a member of uh, the committees on the internal market um, and also Uh, on the Economic and Monetary Union, and I would assume that you would like to contribute to the disputes on new policies in those fields. Can you perhaps, uh, in the remaining time, point to some of the critical discussions you're involved on internal market, for example, which is on the agenda, and we should anticipate some serious discussions coming.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have definitely the ongoing debates all around corporate sustainability due diligence. Uh, In this field, um, I am the rapporteur for the uh, opinion of the Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee on the um, due diligence obligations for financial service providers. And as we have seen in the debates in the Council last year, the financial service providers were the biggest problem until the very end. It seems now in the parliament, this is the same story. And so I expected also for the trilogue that the due diligence obligations for the financial sector are going to be uh, the most contagious discussion point that we have here. And the issue here is that it, this debate is so ideologized We have the EPP and even further to the right of the house that is totally against the entire idea of of due diligence and Mm -hmm. considers it only a burden on industries. Whereas we see this as a core tool in order to promote our values outside of the European Union and globally. And that is very difficult to find a compromise. Although if you talk to, to companies, they actually are willing to engage into this. They just don't know how yet and need assistance to get there. So this debate will certainly keep us busy for the coming months. The second debate, and I, have, I think this has potentially become even bigger, is on the question of our new tectonic shifts, I would even say, in economic policy of the European Union with the mm-hmm. Net Zero Industry Act, with the Critical Raw Materials Act, with the Single Market Emergency mm-hmm. Instrument, with the energy market. So we're getting here into a new model of how European economy should look like, more managed, more steered, uh, making competition policy a subordinate tool of achieving industrial policies in the spirit a little bit of the 1970s French policies, which have shown themselves to be not that successful. So we need to have here a clear debate. And we also need to see that the big added value of what is happening on the other side of the ocean, the United States, is that here economic policy is for once combined with social and environmental conditionality. So they are actually now using economic policy as a political tool. Whilst we here see, we only see it as a response to a global competition with the Americans. So here we are going to have a core debate of how we understand the future of European economic policy and by that also our position globally in what can be called uh, Europe's open strategic autonomy.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we need to think out of the box. I think Precisely. Is, uh, definitely the case. So... Uh, That's one of the biggest cliches in Brussels. You know, not to do business as usual, and that's uh, sometimes the introduction of doing business as usual. But uh, now probably you would need to really innovate and and drop the dogma, which uh, sometimes uh, defines uh, the actions. Uh, This so-called IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, and all the implications is one big development. On the other side of the Atlantic, the other one is the banking crisis. I wonder if you would like to comment on this because. What it reminds me is that 15 years ago, uh, for about a year, a lot of people in continental Europe uh, were saying that, look, this is an Anglo-American crisis. And now again, what we hear is that, uh, look, uh, you know, the Americans again deregulated and at least the first weeks of this crisis show that, you know, the EU countries are more resilient because who is in trouble in Europe? It's Switzerland, not EU country. So it's, uh, yeah, maybe some complacency is building up again. And there would be a moment of truth when, uh, we also need to look into uh, the practices inside the European Union. Do you have a strong feeling on this emerging crisis?
0: No, we are definitely facing a moment of truth because whenever we have waves of new regulation, they are normally introduced with a view to prevent the crisis that just had happened. Mm -hmm. So all what we did in banking union was to establish a system in which subprime mortgage crisis would not have affected the uh, European banking market. What we now see is a different story. We now see the reactions of the banking market on the very uh, heavy change in the interest rate policy of central banks, that when you had a business model that was, you're looking at higher risk investments, such as uh, Silicon Valley Bank and others that in America currently have a problem, which was then only backed up by um, uh, investments into government bonds that were outside of the own capital requirements uh, regulation, the same in Europe. That's not any different in Europe than in the United States. Uh, And then the effect that the interest rate change had on those. That's a problem that we also have in our banking system. Our capital buffers are different because they also apply to smaller sized banks, such as the Silicon Valley Bank, which was not the case in America. But the very fact that this is now a reaction to the switch of the interest rate policy, that is something that is also, let's say, a check for the capacity of the banking union to respond to this. And we still have one big area of construction that is open. It is the European Deposit Insurance Scheme. So the very fact that we might still come into a situation where a national deposit insurance scheme is not strong enough to rescue the deposits of uh, depositors in a certain uh, country. There is no fiscal backstop because countries have, after the pandemic and after the war, just not the fiscal capacities to act anymore. It can bring us into the same troubles that we had in 2008 and 2009. So, that completing the banking union, in particular with regard to the European deposit insurance scheme, in my point of view, and I say this in particular as a representative of Germany, is a core path, a core step that we have to take quickly and still within this mandate, I believe.
1: Well, obviously, this is music to my ears if uh, someone from Germany and uh, more precisely from Baden Württemberg is suggesting that the banking union needs to be completed so it was not a stupid idea in 2012 to put uh, forward uh, three pillars and indeed one pillar is still you know lost in space somehow and just doesn't want to materialize by itself Uh, but in 2012 uh, when the crisis was so deep we also discussed the unemployment insurance at the european union level because you know safety nets uh Uh, If crisis can happen, safety nets are needed not only for the banking system, but also for the employees. And one type of uh, safety net was introduced with the shore instrument um, at the start of the uh, pandemic. But this is not unemployment insurance or reinsurance. Interestingly enough, uh, when the von der Leyen Commission started... Uh, the president of the commission put into the mission letter of both uh, Paolo Gentiloni and Nicola Schmidt the uh, unemployment reinsurance to be achieved within this mandate. Uh, do you have expectations about this? Do you see any momentum building up or this will be left uh, again to the next commission and the next commission?
0: I'm afraid that it's going to be rather the latter case if we, if I look at it from a real Politics point of view, I honestly do believe that that von der Leyen is convinced that the European unemployment insurance scheme is a good idea. But that was 2019; it was before the pandemic. And wow. with the pandemic, we have mobilized next generation EU, an additional fund, basically as big as the as the European Union budget, and that has uh, given political resistance for that kind of instruments. In particular, in Germany, it was quite a revolutionary step, not a Hamiltonian one though, but still revolutionary enough, uh, that the appetite in those countries to go for another step, such as the unemployment reinsurance scheme, is rather low. It doesn't take away that politically speaking with next generation EU, with the very fact that the European Union was allowed to raise debt in order to finance dedicated earmarked expenses, uh, we basically created the narrative on which also the European Unemployment Reinsurance Scheme would be built on, namely uh, that we raise additional funds, be they now tax finance or debt financed, with a clearly dedicated purpose. And honestly, this was back then when uh, you as a social affairs commissioner introduced the idea of a European Unemployment Benefit Scheme. That was, I believe, a game changer in the entire debate, since in Germany, there was a huge fear of European funds <laughs> going into going into black holes of Italian budgets disappearing somewhere. And you brought up the idea of earmarking and to combine raising additional funds, but with a clear purpose. And that member states would not be allowed to use this money outside of this purpose. And that was the argument that also now convinced the German constitutional court to approve next generation EU because they said it was earmarked. It was the very mechanism that convinced the German public to support next generation EU. And that is here to stay. So therefore, I believe once The challenges of uh, the immediate challenges of the pandemic and the war are settled and we look at more permanent and stable mechanisms beyond the final days of next generation EU, then the unemployment reinsurance scheme will be very quickly back to the agenda because it embodies all those elements that I was just mentioning. I don't think you see this happening in the remaining one year, though, uh, but I see this uh, happening or I see a big chance for this to happening in the next mandate, certainly if we push for it.
1: I can see here the optimism of the intellect. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm really grateful uh, for this. Um, it seems that we are in a, in, in a semi-Hamiltonian situation, but that's definitely progress as compared to uh, the previous times when it just took very, very long time between 2010 and 2012 to find the right direction at all. For reforming economic governance in the European Union. And we were paying a very, very high price for all these delays. Dear Reni, I would like to thank you for having this very frank conversation with us about the issues you would like to promote inside the European Parliament, but also about the functioning of the European Parliament and this very unpleasant episode uh, with the so-called uh, Qatar Gate. Thanks so much. And um, I also thank our listeners for their attention. And um, we will come back um, in the coming weeks uh, with similarly interesting uh, topics. Thank you and bye-bye. Thanks again.
0: Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not
1: hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Bebs Talks. More is yet to come, stay tuned!